Welcome to your Relationship Lovecast by True Potential, the weekly web show and podcast that explores relationships and wellness, featuring in-depth interviews with acclaimed authors, wellness experts, health influencers, and spiritual leaders so that you can create a relationship and life you love. And now your host, Andrea Carella. Welcome back to your Relationship Lovecast. Today on episode 29, we will discuss how we use dysfunctional relationships to hide from intimacy. Sometimes when we feel insecure, unworthy, or feel uncomfortable with intimacy with others, we can unconsciously be drawn to others who experience those same beliefs, feel incomplete, or have difficulty being close and connected to another human being. Some dysfunctional patterns include substance use, codependency, narcissism, rage and volatility, whether it be physical, verbal, or emotional abuse, dominant or controlling behaviors, infidelity, blaming, avoiding, attention-seeking, or being distracted and disconnected, just to name a few. In order to discuss this topic in more detail, I have chosen to have the authors of the book, A Relationship, Mark Borg, Grant Brenner, and Daniel Berry on today's show. Mark Borg is the founding partner of the Community Consulting Group and a supervisor of psychotherapy at the William Allenson White Institute. He's written extensively about the intersection of psychoanalysis and community crisis intervention. Grant Brenner is a board-certified psychiatrist in private practice, specializing in treating mood and anxiety disorders and the complex problems that may arise in adulthood from childhood trauma and loss. Daniel Berry has practiced as a registered nurse in New York City since 1987. He worked for almost two decades in community-based programs and private care for HIV, AIDS, and substance abuse populations. Thank you so much, Mark, Grant, and Daniel, for being on today's show. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. Great. So how did you come together to write a relationship using dysfunctional relationships to hide from intimacy? What inspired you? Well, we've known each other for a while. We all live in the same neighborhood, and Grant and I went to the same psychoanalytic institute. And we came together with a common interest in compulsive caregiving. And uh, originally, we'd started writing and thinking and talking about this compulsive caregiving. We came up with a term, human antidepressant. We started writing about this, we started thinking about this, and uh, we started uh, putting together a manuscript called Are You a Human Antidepressant? But as we went on, and as we started thinking about it, and as we started seeing some of the dynamics of this playing out among ourselves, we started thinking more broadly that this human antidepressant thing might not actually be something that one person brings into a relationship but something that the people in the relationship use to protect themselves from the anxiety of being close. We sort of, uh, in our interaction, in the work we were doing, discovered the very concept that we would go on and write about, which we call irrelationship. Do any of the other of you, like on the call, do, do, uh, do you have any input on what inspired each of you? Yeah, I think... At some point, I realized, as Mark is suggesting, and this is Grant, that we were looking at a pattern of relationship or kind of relationship rather than something that individuals did, something people did together. There's a concept in organizational work called a social defense, which is basically a way of relating. And we started looking for a word to describe this way of relating, 
and we went through a lot of different terms. But the term irrelationship really rang true. Mm -hmm. And then can you explain to our audience the concept of irrelationship and brain lock? Well, the simplest way of defining and describing your relationship is that it's a way of relating that protects us, those within the relationship, from anxiety. Actually, from protecting us from the anxiety that's connected to, well, getting too close to somebody or letting somebody else get close to oneself. The, the term relationship actually describes a dynamic between two people where, where they, they look like they're in a real caring, giving relationship, but they've constructed it in such a way that they're able to keep their distance from each other so that each feels safe from the threat, perceived threats of intimacy. Yeah, the threats of intimacy, empathy, vulnerability, and emotional investment. And it's sort of ironic that the way that people in irrelationship protect themselves from anxiety is through caretaking each other, through being one directional, through pushing care upon the other person in the relationship, you actually effectively disallow the person from caring for you. Note that he used the term caretaking, not caregiving. Mm-hmm. Now, how, how might this concept apply? How would people know if they're in that sort of relationship dynamic? How would they be able to pinpoint that? And how can they avoid those patterns? Mm. Here, here are the questions that we ask people to consider. Your relationship actually functions as a way of not knowing what we're up to. It actually... Uh, constitutes what we call more technically a psychological defense system. So here are the questions that we encourage people to ask themselves to figure out whether they might be in your relationship. One, do I keep trying to fix or rescue the people I am drawn to? Two, do I keep hoping that they will fix or rescue me? Three, do I equate loving with taking care of? Four, do I keep doing for my partner even when I receive little in return? Five, do my relationships feel more like work than play? Six, do I feel enlivened or exhausted by my relationship? And seven, does my relationship enrich my life? Now, uh, part of the ambiguity comes in, for example, in the question of do I keep doing for my partner while receiving little in return? In some cases, uh, the person who's doing that, all that caretaking, is disallowing. The partner, his partner, to do anything in return for them. He finds meaning in a relationship by being the one who's doing all the giving. Mm-hmm. Now, is this usually just with acts of service? Is this a, an emotional connection? Is it physical connection? Could it be all of the above? Could it switch back and forth? These different themes emotional connection versus physical, and so on? Oh, we believe that it can play out in any of these areas. We believe that it can play out in basically any kind of expression of intimacy, any kind of expression of closeness, empathy, anything that leads to emotional investment in the other person, in the relationship itself. Because we believe that this really develops very early in life or as a reaction to uh, basically to ineffective early care. 
We believe that your relationship starts as a turning of the tables on care between caregiver, parent, often the mother, and the child. The caregiver uh, of the very young child and the child actually flip roles. The child becomes caregiver for the parent as a result of observing a, a distressed emotional state in the caregiver. So the child takes it upon herself to make her caregiver feel better. That's the beginning of your relationship. Mm, right. These patterns that are learned in childhood. If we have a, a depressed parent or parents that argue, that may set up this pattern, this dysfunctional pattern of trying to rescue or take care of. Yeah, that's, that's right. And then people find each other in adulthood and they replay their childhood patterns in the context of adult relationships. Mm. So for instance, uh, a person whose mother was depressed as a child might develop routines, what we call song and dance routines, simply to make the mother happy. This child doesn't understand depression or anxiety or trauma, only sees that his caregiver is unhappy, and so will do whatever it takes to make that parent happy again, essentially so that she can get back to her real job, which is taking care of him. So maybe she finds a depressed partner later on in life, a depressed boyfriend or girlfriend, or maybe has a depressed boss or a depressed friend. And in the presence of this depressed other, then she activates these childhood patterns without knowing it and goes through the same types of more or less desperate efforts to make the person happy. Mm. As Frank was suggesting, this can show itself in romantic relationships, obviously, but it can also show itself in the workplace or in any other situation where people find themselves relating to other people. For example, in the workplace, we may all of us have worked with somebody in the office whom everybody depends upon to pick up everybody else's slack and make sure that everything is done right or that everything gets cleaned up the way it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. The other members of the team just kind of let that person continue in that role indefinitely. Mm. And can you explain uh, what brain lock is? What exactly is that concept? Brain lock is essentially the neurobiological manifestation of these things, the brain science, but more specifically the brain science between two people or more than two people. And the way, the way that the brain works in relationships solidifies the irrelationship dynamic and keeps people from becoming aware of it and also reinforces the habit-based conditioned responses that keep people doing the same thing, even when it's not working. And some of the things that are involved in brain lock include neurotransmitters like dopamine that are involved in reward behavior, that these behaviors are rewarding even though they're, they're leading to unhappiness in some ways, elevated serotonin levels, endorphin levels that are involved in pleasure centers, and some other more complex brain mechanisms that happen in social neurobiology. Mm. And what are the major defense systems that couples commonly create within their relationships? Well, we think it's, it's kind of interesting. You know, we pondered that question when we were asked it. And 
because in a sense, the couples come together and have various routines for defending themselves against anxiety. But really, you know, outside of the the realm of uh, social defenses against anxiety, we we really think that irrelationship very much is the way that couples defend themselves from anxiety. Yeah, but the, the defense systems are from a, a fairly straightforward level, they're essentially fight-flight systems as well as avoidance and numbing systems, which all mammals utilize. Of course, they get played out in human beings in more sophisticated ways, but they either involve using conflict in order to deal with threat or using running away in order to deal with threat or, or shutting down in order to deal with threat. Right. So we could go down the list of the standard psychological defense systems and see that couples are using, for instance, denial, projective identification, the whole list of psychological defenses that couples use. But your relationship kind of goes beyond that and actually suggests a place where couples co-create psychological defense together and sustain that psychological and emotional distance from each other for long, long periods of time. Right. I know something that that I see a lot with working with couples is this pattern of blaming or attacking, and then and both could probably participate in this, which is that fight response. Then there's that flee response where both avoid and maybe sweep things under the carpet, or a combination of the two, or one fights and one flees, and that sort of dynamic that plays out. And then they create these loops and these dysfunctional patterns that are not helping them create that vulnerability and that connection, that deep level of intimacy, that vulnerability allows us to create that open space with one another. And so it creates those dysfunctional patterns. You nailed it. Right. And the loops are really important. I'm interested that you use the term loose because, uh, and Grant was talking a moment ago about the physiologic basis uh, of of the pattern, and what's important to realize is that the physiologic changes that take place in the brain, the central nervous system, actually reinforce the behaviors, and the behaviors reinforce the physiologic changes, so that it does become it, it does actually become a loop. Mm-hmm. And what are those biological things that go on that influence the loops? I know you were talking about dopamine and serotonin levels. Is that what that is? Or are there other biological things that are going on that are it's, sustaining those loops? There's a lot going on. It depends on what phase of the relationship it is. Earlier on, there's more passionate love and there's more of the, the kind of reward hormones floating around because of the levels of excitement are higher. In, including things like glutamate in the frontal cortex. But I think when when uh, the relationship settles into an irrelationship pattern, you're looking at deeper brain structures in the ventral striatal system that are involved in condition-based learning. So essentially Pavlovian type of responses where each person is triggered by the other person into these these early caregiving routines that they develop with their primary caregivers. And they essentially don't know exactly what they're doing. Sometimes you might call that brain jack. 
uh, where the, the deeper brain systems are taking over from the higher brain systems. And you'd expect to see, along with that, an imbalance between the amygdala and the hippocampus, where the amygdala is relatively more active because it's based on strong emotions and fear responses in the absence of hippocampal regulation, which has to do with contextualizing what's going on. So to put it a little more concisely, the person doesn't realize that they're in an adult relationship. They lose that sense of context mm. and they act like they're in a state of, of crisis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because indeed they are. If, you know, in more simple terms, if your heart, so-called heart, <laughs> is threatened, you know, by somebody else's presence, by somebody coming for you, by someone coming at you, then all of these mechanisms work together to protect you from the awareness of how much risk love or caring about someone or being intimate with somebody actually puts you, or again, your heart in. And that, again, you can see why, you know, with this a really powerful psychological defense that we create together, this way of relating that protects us from anxiety, you can really see, you know, back to your earlier question, that if it's working effectively to protect you from anxiety, it's going to be really hard to just let it go. You know, you're going to have to experience the pain, the loneliness and isolation of being in your relationship, as we see people who, who are dealing with it usually do, if you're ever going to really deal with it. This is why, uh, in a lot of cases, it can take years for people to identify that something is wrong. Because nothing dramatic has happened. There hasn't been any kind of traumatic episode in the course of the relationship that makes people throw things at one another. Right. And yet, somehow they're aware that things are getting frayed around the edges. That there's a piece missing. They can't figure out what that is. And we mentioned earlier uh, the idea of missing each other. They are conscious many times that a closeness that they once had is missing. And it's not that they're becoming positively disaffected by one another. It's just that something seems to have gone away. Yeah. Mm. And it won't be until late in the relationship many times when, when it begins to come apart and they begin to feel stress and anxiety, distress and anxiety, that they, that's the point at which many people will seek help, want to go into therapy to find out what is wrong with this relationship. Mm. And what are the main loops and patterns couples could get stuck in in relation to sex, for example? It's a relationship. A relationship is basically kind of like an emotional logjam. It, it creates that where both people believe that they are doing all the giving. Yeah. So with sex, there's a few basic patterns. One is not having sex and missing having sex. Another might be having extramarital sex if the person is in that kind of relationship. Uh, another one could be having routine sex, which becomes unenjoyable and actually a source of even discomfort for both partners and sometimes even to the point of having sex when they don't want to have sex. Those are some of the basic patterns that come up around sex and maybe even kind of a manic sexuality which uses exciting, risky sex in order to avoid that there's some kind of disturbance in the emotional intimacy. 
I think those are the main patterns that can come up in sexual behavior. Right. Mm. Right. But again, they, on top of that, if you add irrelationship, if you add irrelationship to it, what you really see is that both people believe they're doing all the giving, they're pulling all the weight. You know, for instance, you know, one person feels like, you know, he's he's doing all the giving. He's setting up the romantic night. He's creating the, the 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 atmosphere. You know, while you know performing in whatever way. While the other person sits back and feels like she's doing all the performing by acting as if whatever he's offering is good enough. So neither one of them are actually connecting. We actually have come up with a term which we call relationship sanity, and it means coming to a balance in the giving and receiving. Because your relationship really is is a is a reluctance in in the receiving of the care, the love, the affection that the other person has to offer, and and certainly that comes up really really uh, profoundly in sex. Mm. How would you say that these loops and patterns play out in parenting when parenting a child? How do they play out? A lot of times for a small child who's in, in the caregiving that they're receiving from the, the parent isn't adequate. The child is then inspired to behaviors intended to satisfy the parent. We have an acronym that we've coined for the behaviors. The acronym is GRAFTS. G stands for being good, being a very good child. R stands for being right. A child who's very talented and being right all the time, being, being very, always having the right solution. A is for absent, where a child knows that the best thing that he can do to make his parent feel better is to make himself unseen. F stands for funny, where the child becomes a real entertainer, is joking and carrying on all the time, hoping to make the parent feel better. T stands for tense, for the child who is walking on eggshells all the time, hoping not to do anything to upset the parent any further. And then S stands for smart, the child who shows off a precocious ability uh, to be smart. Those are things that the child can do in response to the parent. But I think your question makes me think about intergenerational transmission of irrelationship, where the parent's needs aren't getting met by their significant other, and they may turn to the child to meet their emotional needs. And you can see how this gets passed down through the generations looking for the child to serve in, in some kind of role of providing a more intimate connection because they're not getting it where they're supposed to get it. Right. I would imagine that that plays out in, in patterns where there are problems between the husband and wife and the wife focuses on taking care of the children to not have to deal with the problems in the relationship or vice versa where the wife is focusing on taking care of the children and the man feels like an outsider and as though he's not really part of the family or feels like second or third most important priority. And so those potential patterns that could play out. Yeah, I can think of many examples of that from people I know and in my practice where um, parents aren't doing well, maybe they're headed toward divorce, and the mother confides in one of the children about what's going on uh, and doesn't let the father know, instead of communicating with the father, the mother is using the child as kind of a surrogate therapist sometimes, you know, a as a friend as well. Uh, and that can be really detrimental to the child. Well, Absolutely. It's, just a, it's another example of the child and the, and the parents switching roles. 
but the child is becoming the caretaker for the parent. Yeah. yeah, and these are these are familiar concepts to people. We talk about parentified children. What we do is we talk about how that really plays out in a broader context. Mm. Now, how might some of these loops and patterns uh, play out when dealing with money or in communication? Do you have any thoughts on that, on how those themes can play out in those particular areas? Yeah, in a general sense, they, they introduce a lot of distortions. And if you take a step back and you look at what the patterns and loops are, for each ind- individual person, you, s- you see some recurring patterns. So, for example, someone might have difficulties with money because they feel like in order to take care of other people, they have to be generous to a fault. Uh, and so they might end up trying to pay for everyone all the time. Uh, and that might lead to problems with the other people not feeling grateful and taken care of, but feeling resentful. And the person who's trying to pay for everything all the time cannot see that he's making other people feel resentful. That would be one concrete example. And one of the things that all, that all of the things you've asked about have in common is they all trigger great insecurity. And in the insecurity of a relationship, the, the defense compensates so that everything, again, is a routine, as Danny was talking about, the graphs, routines, where we are putting on these performances for other people in order to essentially distract them. We're doing everything we can to care for them in large part so that they don't know how small we feel, how anxious we feel, how insecure. And of course, one of the things that setting roles up that way does is it enforces a particular distance that eliminates, again, the anxiety of becoming too close to one another. And in terms of communication, it makes communication severely (laughs) impaired. Superficial, I think, would be a way of putting it. If you're communicating with others, especially your partner, your spouse, without intimacy, without empathy, without vulnerability, and without investment, then you're basically skimming the surface. So communication in a real sense becomes impossible. And because we believe that a relationship is a version of two-person or joint, uh, jointly created uh, dissociation, which is a psychological defense that blocks anxiety, then in a sense it's like you're not really there. If you don't have those four things, if you don't have intimacy, empathy, vulnerability, and investment, it's like you're, you're there, but you're not there. So it's very, very hard to hold on to any sort of sense of the relationship going on together, and the splits become severe. Mm. Now, how might somebody break out of these irrelationship patterns if they learn them in childhood, if they're noticing them in their own relationship? How can they break out of those patterns? One of the things that we place the most emphasis on in the book is learning a new technique of communication that involves a type of listening that most of us aren't accustomed to, aren't skilled at. When we talk about communication and what Mark was just talking about, about the absence of intimacy, this comes from nobody getting what they want, nobody asking for what they want, and nobody being open to listening to hear what their partner wants. And what, what we do in the book is we teach techniques for learning how to listen 
in a non-judgmental, non-preemptive way to open the possibility of people's being able to hear one another without simply waiting to retaliate. We call the technique the 40-20-40, and it basically suggests that there is a middle ground of accountability for the relationship itself. We suggest that people take an issue, an ongoing issue, something happening in the moment, and they use this process called the 40-20-40, we also call it the self-other assessment, to begin taking accountability of their part of any kind of issue or problem in the relationship. And we suggest that people take no more than 60% and no less than 40% accountability for the issue of, at hand, doing a kind of spot check inventory of what their part in that particular, say, problem is, so that they don't go you know, 90% into the other person's territory taking all of the responsibility for the issue at hand and so that they don't pull back to 10% or 2% responsibility for the issue at hand and they start to create this shared space of ownership for the relationship itself. And we have techniques that we suggest people uh, use together which is that they set a, aside a period of time and in three minute increments each person shares his or her uh, sense of accountability for what's going on with the issue at hand. Mm. Mm -hmm. Now, what does the uh, dream sequence stand for, and how does this process help couples break free from relationship sanity? Well, the dream sequence is actually the bigger recovery model. The, the 40-20-40 and the self-other assessment is actually uh, something that leads to the dream sequence, and the acronym stands for D-discovery, which is where someone or both people hit rock bottom and realize that they're trapped in the song and dance routines of your relationship. R is for repair. And basically, we, we see conflict, problems, issues as opportunities for people to come together and repair. And we actually call it interactive repair. We see that every crisis conflict that people and couples uh, can recognize their own part in it, but creates an opportunity for them to, to write the problem together, and that we see as creating emotional health, relational health. Uh, the E is empowerment, getting deeper into self-understanding and acceptance of uh, self and other. Four is alternatives, which is where people really start to use the 40-20-40 self-other assessment to create alternative ways of relating to each other. And M is what we hope the whole process results in, which is mutuality, back to that relational sanity where there is a balance in giving and taking. So the dream sequence is essentially a process of recognizing conditioning that doesn't work, unlearning old conditioning, and relearning new ways of relating, and at each step of the way, working toward greater and greater mutuality. Mm -hmm. It's learning a new style with each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Engaging, uh, you know, old and often long lost parts of the self. And we really think that the result of this will be for the couple to empower effective communication between themselves. Or sometimes in groups this works and it empowers effective communication among groups of people. In fact, <clears throat> honestly, we use this ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think it can be very curative, too, for somebody that 
maybe grew up in a household where they weren't heard, for example, or they were so focused, busy taking care of other people by opening up that dialogue where that person can share those those experiences or sh- become more conscious and acknowledge and take accountability for their patterns of behavior and putting that on the table. And each person does and has that opportunity to be accountable, that that opens up a space for that mutual understanding and that mutual healing that can take place in this curative relationship that could end up being therapeutic and beneficial and help them feel more secure and empowered in their in their day-to-day life. You've nailed it. One of the most important things that we try to get across is the idea of hospitality. And as you suggested, a, a lot of people grow up in situations, households, where they are not heard, where their position in the family doesn't, hasn't been validated or they haven't felt it was validated. And it becomes, it's a completely new experience for them when they find others that they're around are actually willing to hear what they have to say about their experience and to receive it non-judgmentally. And when you approach it, when that approach is taken and everybody gives one another that same hospitality, that same receptiveness, then the solution becomes also a joint, a shared task that everyone participates in together. Mm. Does anybody have anything else that they would like to add? Anything that we didn't cover that you would like to share with our audience? I think it's really important to emphasize the transformation that takes place when we learn how to listen in in a turn-taking way where we take turns listening and speaking but what happens during this very deep listening is it's hard to put into words because it leads to inner uh, transformation and it is something that is difficult at first but over time it becomes more and more rewarding as you shift from being rewarded by avoiding listening to being rewarded by paying close attention, it's, um, it's really a profound experience. Mm. Well, and this is Mark. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that we come back to pretty regularly when we're talking to anybody about your relationship and especially about our ongoing development of this concept and, and the practice of uh, recovery is you know, how much we on a weekly, sometimes daily basis, the three of us have utilized this to survive, you know, as a, as a team, as, as authors, uh, you know, we're, this is a business, this is a, this is, we are colleagues, we are friends, we, you know, we share a lot of things together and, and we have really at times needed to use these practices in order to survive ourselves. Well, and the fact is that all three of us, even leaving aside this book and the work that we're doing around this book, all three of us are very busy professionals. We had very busy lives and careers before the manuscript ever came into being. And we've had to learn a whole new way of being both in our lives together and and in our professional lives apart from this and learn to modulate our energies and our experiences and share together how that's impacted on us and, and therefore how it impacts our interaction with one another. Yeah, so my last question uh, on today's show is, what are some additional resources uh, for our listeners and how can they get connected to you? Right, so 
not surprisingly, we have a website. It's www.yourrelationship.com. We're on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. And on YouTube, people can find some videos of us talking about different topics of interest. Uh, and we are also on Psychology Today. We have a blog called Your Relationship. Great. Well, thank you, Mark, Grant, and Daniel for being on today's show. Thank you. Thank, thank you so you. much. It was a blast. It was fun. <laughs> Thanks. Great. Come so, and see us when you're in the East Village, will you? Absolutely. I will. I will. See the Polish uh, diner Neptune. Great. Great. And I'll, take, and I'll take you to a good restaurant. Oh, even better. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll be there soon. <laughs> thank you. Thanks a lot. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and found it as interesting, as informative as I did. And to get access to the show notes and links mentioned on the show, please go to truepotentialcounseling.com. If you like this podcast, if you could please leave a review in iTunes so I can have more impact and reach more people. Thank you so much, and we will catch you next time on Relationship Lovecast. Thanks for listening to Lovecast by True Potential at www.truepotentialcounseling.com. 